You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. A couple of quotes. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. H.P. Lovecraft. Space is big. Really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. I mean, you may think it's a long way down the road to the chemist, but that's just peanuts to space. Douglas Adams from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy If the unknown is, as H.P. Lovecraft posited, the oldest and strongest fear, and if one ponders the sanity-blasting scale of the known universe, it's easy to understand why there are many who fear what lurks out there in the darkness and in the lights. Aliens, meteors, comets, radiation. Some fears are grounded in facts and others in existential angst. But what about planets? Is there some planet X that occasionally passes through our solar system wreaking havoc? And did the ancients know about it? Next on Monster Talk, Planet X... Nibiru, Zechariah Sitchin, Part 2. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, Part Ape, Part Man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk. I'm Karen Stoltznow. And I'm Blake Smith. In our last episode, we looked at the facts behind the claims of Zechariah Sitchin. It turns out there's little to back up Sitchin's story about the Anunnaki and the textual basis for his claims appear to be non-existent. But what about the mysterious planet X that some call Nibiru? In today's episode, we'll hear about the actual astronomy surrounding the cyclical story of a rogue planet. We're joined by astronomer Dr. Stuart Robbins, the host of the Pseudo-Astronomy Podcast. He's devoted a lot of time and work to explain the facts and evidence about these conspiracy tales. Spoiler alert, there's nothing to support the idea that any such thing exists and is a danger to Earth. But it is significantly easier to make up spurious claims than it is to debunk them, if for no other reasons than the volume of nonsense that can be claimed without evidence and... There's a common misconception that it's the responsibility of scientists to disprove such claims rather than for the claimants to prove them in the first place. The late Christopher Hitchens once said, that which can be asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. True enough, but since Dr. Robbins has done so much work showcasing the nonsense surrounding the Bureau and Planet X stories, let's hear his side of the story with a little monster talk. 
Dr. Stuart Robbins is an astrogeophysicist. He is a research scientist whose work has been involved with Martian impact craters and more recently lunar and Mercurian craters, as well as impact craters found across Saturn's moons. He's interested in astronomy education, and uh, I think he's probably better known as Astro Stew. He runs the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast and website. Welcome to the show, Stew. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome. I'm, we'll put a link to all those things and anything else you want to link to that's pertinent uh, in the show notes. We're having you on as a sort of adjunct interview to talk about this whole Planet X Nibiru idea, and we've uh, we've sort of started that conversation with uh, Michael Heiser talking about the uh, the background of Zechariah Sitchin and uh, from an ancient languages perspective. But I, I thought it would be a good idea to talk about the whole idea of this rogue planet from a, an astronomer's perspective, and so that's what we wanted to do here. Plus, I think you have other things that will be of interest to listeners that you are also interested in, and obviously linking to your podcast and uh, some of your other uh, articles and work will be helpful there. Yep. Okay. So, getting started, uh, if you don't mind a little background stuff, what uh, can you tell us about the whole Planet X conspiracy and and your research into that and is it the same as Nibiru or is that something that's just gotten glommed together? It's all part and parcel to the same just general class of pseudoscience. Um, it it really just is a catch-all these days for pretty much uh, anything that anyone comes up with in terms of. There are ancient aliens that visited us, or there's a planet coming to kill us, or there's something in ancient writings that I think I see that indicates that uh, ancient peoples knew of something else in the solar system. Uh, I mean, various people have come up with different ideas that are all mutually exclusive, and yet they almost uh, all think that they agree with each other in the sense that it's against the mainstream. So it's just really a catch-all thing of there is something out there that might do something, but for which there's really no evidence for. Okay, that was going to be my question. Does it exist then? Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you were to rephrase that uh, question and say, well, could it exist? Uh, the answer is maybe. So this is where the, the broad breaststrokes answer I gave of it doesn't exist has a small asterisk next to it. The thing is, is that we've looked. We've done astronomical surveys that go down to a certain brightness. So in other words, they've looked all over the entire sky and they're sensitive enough to see something that would be a certain level of brightness. And that brightness can be influenced by really two things. One of them is distance from us or distance to the object. And the other thing is the size of the object. So for example, if we were to place the moon, uh, our moon, at the distance of Pluto, we would not see it. But because of where it is, we see it really, really bright in the sky uh, most nights out of the week or year, whatever. So what we've done is we've done these astronomical surveys and we've looked and we've limited what kinds of objects can be out there in terms of a Jupiter-sized object out to a certain distance and in terms of a Saturn-sized object out to a certain distance. And we really haven't found anything. But with that said, 2016, uh, now that we're recording in mid-December, 2016 has seen uh, some interesting theoretical work. So what some different scientists have done is they've looked at the orbits of some objects that are way out there in the solar system, uh, the orbits of these very small objects that we have been able to see. And they've done analyses of those orbits and they've said, well, by pure chance, it would be really, really, really hard for all of these objects to have the orbits that they do. But if we were to place a planet-sized object way out there in the solar system, beyond what any of these surveys that have ruled something out could actually see, then that could explain some of these objects' orbits. To me, that's not an entirely convincing argument because we really don't know how stuff behaves way far out there in the solar system, and we've really only discovered a few hundred objects out of the trillions that we think are there. Well. But 
for some people, uh, that is a convincing argument, and people have started to look for a hypothetical object. Now, that said, that is not the Planet X that any of what I would term pseudoscientists have come up with over the last several decades. It doesn't fit any of their criteria. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so that's, you know, I haven't had a chance to dig in very deeply on this from like I would if I were doing an article on it, you know, so the podcast from our perspective is a little more casual than the kind of work I would do for a blog entry or an article for a magazine. Mm -hmm. But so I started off by going to Wikipedia and and they talk about, (laughs) you know, and then Wikipedia, it, 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 I like it. It it can be great. It's not always a hundred percent accurate. And the more you know about it's a good starting point. Yeah. You know, the more, the more, you know, the more you've researched, the more likely you are to find mistakes. And I, again, as a little side note, I think it's a good project for anybody who's interested in sort of fact based approaches to sharing information would do well to actually learn how to edit a Wikipedia to push it towards, you know, more accuracy. Right. But that being said, Wikipedia says that the the idea of this sort of Planet X comes from this one person, Nancy Leder, or perhaps Leder, I'm not sure, L-I-E-D-E-R. And the, I've always heard leader. Leader, so, so as in take me to your. Uh, <laughs> but she said, <laughs> I, I guess in 1995, um, she started this sort of thing based on some something that she remembered as a contactee from Aliens, uh, that this idea that there was this... Uh, planet out there this planet x and so what you're talking about it sounds like you're saying people are looking for ways to provide uh, astronomical explanations for what she is essentially uh either making up from whole cloth or was told by aliens i i'm you know whether while i don't think there's much evidence that she was actually told anything by aliens let's just Let's assume for a moment that she was, even if that was the case. They're looking for ways to find ways to measure whether that would really be there using scientific approaches, right? Uh, sort of. I mean, that's why um, you would talk about what what the effect of the orbit on the, the planets we do know about. I mean, you could use that as a, the idea of exoplanets. That's a real question. Are there exoplanets, right? I mean, that's a legitimate scientific question. Right. So exoplanets would be the ones orbiting other stars, but what all the Planet X people are talking about is stuff that orbits our star. Right. So what about those, the, the planetoids that are in the area outside the orbit of Pluto? What do we call those? So we call the ones that are out to uh, a certain distance, we call them Kuiper Belt objects um, after the guy who first theorized them. And beyond that, we would have the Oort cloud, uh, named by, named for Jan Oort, who also theorized that. But we don't actually have any Oort cloud objects that we've discovered because they are too far away and too faint. So it's really the Kuiper Belt objects that we're talking about in terms of uh, the few hundred objects that we discovered out and about around and beyond Pluto. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, so I do want to correct something that you said about Nancy Leader. So Nancy Leader, I really don't think was the first one uh, because she, as you said, was really getting uh, involved in the 1990s, whereas it was Zachariah Sitchin who started his stuff earlier. Uh, but with with Nancy, I think it's important to note that she doesn't say that she is a contactee and she was told stuff verbally by aliens and actually visited. She claims that she was abducted as a young child. They put a little bit of their DNA into the telepathic centers of her brain and then activated her as a communications device later on in her life. And so it's from that telepathic communication that she gets her information. Well, that so, clears it all up then. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that would help. I would just want to say that, and this is not an endorsement, but I, I've been with T-Mobile and Sprint, and I'm less than a mile from the tower, and I can get no coverage at my house. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it just makes me think, over the years, Stu, you've had a lot of run-ins with uh, interesting characters, people like uh, Michael Horn. Uh, he who shall not be named. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a, a bit about some of the strange run-ins you've had? Um, well, I guess Michael Horn is a uh, persistent person who he is the uh, quote-unquote official North American media representative of the alleged UFO contactee Billy Meyer, who's in, uh, I believe, Switzerland. I always get Switzerland and Sweden mixed up. In, in one of those European places. Australia uh, and Austria. <laughs> Yeah, one yeah, makes wonderful little thing. snack cakes. I don't remember which is which. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, and hot cocoa. That's true. That's uh, true. <laughs> so Michael Horn, um, he just really likes to latch on to anyone who he thinks will actually respond. And I think that that was the issue was I mentioned him in a blog post because I, you know, if you talk about UFOs, you kind of have to talk about Billy Meyer because he was really one of the first alleged contactees to provide uh, what were for the time clear photographs that showed what he claimed were aliens and craft and whatever. So he really almost founded that field of clear UFO and alien photography. So, you know, I addressed it and I mentioned Michael Horn or something and he just, he, he likes to, um, get attention, I guess. Mm -hmm. And again, as I said, if, if you mention him at all, suddenly you're his new target and he's contacted me as well. And I guess he's going to start contacting Blake now. Wait, yeah. so are we all contactees? Is that what you just said? <laughs> well, just just don't put him in the show notes. Don't, right, don't right, mention right. Michael Horn in the show notes and you should be fine. For the reference to Billy Meyer, um, even if you've never seen the photos he put up, the, the famous X-Files I Want to Believe poster looks to me to be a pretty clear knockoff of some Billy Meyer's work. So it's along those lines where something's hanging in the air above trees. It, uh, like a big wedding cake. Uh, uh, yeah, Campion, the wedding cake web, yeah, web, yeah, so I was going to say uh, lampshade. There's a lot of, like, it looks like common earthly objects suspended in, in crappy photos. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's... I, that's not a very kind assessment, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, he was doing a lot of stuff that people aren't familiar with, uh, like forced perspective. So mm-hmm. that's a case where you might have a small object close to the camera, and then you have a distant object like a house. And because of how things are laid out in that scene, the thing that's small and close to the camera, without any context around it, might look really, really big sitting or flying above the house. So, I mean, he was really one of the first to do that kind of stuff. So in UFO history, uh, he he actually has a big name. It's what his official North American media representative has done in the meantime that is, uh, shall we just say, um, interesting. Yeah. Reminds me of those photographs of guys holding just household cats, domestic cats, and and with a forced perspective and how they look enormous. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, we did that with our son as well. Well, yeah. I think you make it look like he's a mega baby. Your, your cat too. Um, yeah, yeah well, like she was enormous. Gigantic <laughs> Well, so so taking it back to Planet X and Nibiru, I guess the point there, it was that was a long asterisk, but the, or should I say asterisk? Anyway, the, the uh, <laughs> parenthetically speaking for a moment there. They, what, so Sitchin um, talked about this twelfth planet, uh, Nibiru, and then with uh, Leader's work, she's talking about it specifically as. Uh, uh, being a threat to the solar system. And I, I guess there was some split uh, between Sitchin while he was alive saying that they were not connected or they're not the same thing. Um, but it, it, uh, it, whether they are meant to be the same thing or not, and as you say, a lot of people have adopted this sort of idea, um, they've become inextricably connected at this point. So Planet X and Nibiru being two different things with two different origins, people certainly are using it as shorthand, right? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, to most people, it's the same thing. It just depends on which version you're talking about. So to his credit, Sitchin said that this thing wasn't going to come back until like 2186 or so, uh, whereas Nancy Leader was all about 2003. And then a bunch of other people were all about 2012. And if you just think about it, if you're talking about a giant planet, either Earth-sized or Jupiter-sized or uh, star-sized, depending on which version you're talking about and whose ideas you're talking about, uh, that thing can't come so often around Earth because we'd see it. I mean, that would mean that it would have an orbit of just five years or so. And uh, Mars has an orbit of about Two, a little more than two years, I think, or a little less than two Earth years, uh, whereas Jupiter has an orbit around the sun of about 11 years. So that would mean that this object would have to have uh, an orbit where its average distance from the sun is inside of the asteroid belt. And that means that if you're talking about a planet, we would see it all the time. It's not that it would be hidden from us. I mean, if you're talking about an object that's in the asteroid belt that is the size of Earth, 
or Mars or even our moon, we would see it pretty much constantly. And yet somehow, some way, this thing is always hidden, uh, usually inside of lens flares. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so a friend, a mutual friend of us, um, when he found out that you were going to be on the show, had a, a question about Nibiru. Uh, he wanted to know if there's any way that a planet like Nibiru could support life with such an elliptical orbit. So there you have to start to add things to it. Uh, there are different ways that what I'm going to call a rogue planet, even though that's not really what this is, could support life. Could we call it um, Rogue One a Star Wars story planet? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was going to say absolutely. <laughs> no. um, I'm going to probably annoy most of your audience and say I am not a Star Wars fan. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, fine, there's buddy. something wrong with our connection. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm much more a Star Trek fan. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway. Um, so, a rogue planet is a, a planet that's just sort of floating out there in space and doesn't have a host star. And there are ways that such an object could be hospitable to uh, various forms of life. And the biggest way that that could happen, or the easiest way that that could happen, is if it had some sort of internal heat source, uh, like radioactive decay, which actually by most estimates is how over 50% of Earth's heat is generated, is just by radioactive elements decaying inside of the planet. Uh, so if it had radioactive decay and if these uh, creatures, this life form, whatever, lived underground where it was warm, uh, then – and you might have pockets of trapped gas um, if they needed to breathe – then that could support life, and that's perfectly reasonable. Uh, the same thing goes for a planet X that has a highly elliptical orbit in our solar system. Uh, if you were to live underground and have a heat source inside of the planet, um, then you could stay warm when you're way far away from the sun, and you could – um, stay warm but not get too hot as you get closer to the sun. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. But to have that happen, you have to have a planet that's bigger than Mars because uh, we think that Earth and Mars formed pretty much out of the same kind of stuff, and yet Mars is pretty much geologically dead. Uh, these days it really does not have an internal heat source, and therefore uh, it really doesn't have uh, any kinds of uh, surface expression ongoing of that heat source like volcanoes or plate tectonics. So you have to be probably bigger than Mars if you want to last more than a billion or two years. And so again, we're talking about an object that's big enough that we really should have seen it if it were the kind of object that a lot of these people claim. Uh, if we were to instead stick it farther out in the solar system and not have it on a highly elliptical orbit, but just have it, you know, just in a nice circular-ish orbit uh, that stays way far out there, that's perfectly reasonable. And there are, I would actually say these days, most astronomers probably think that it is a greater than zero probability that such a large planet-sized object likely does exist out there in the Kuiper Belt, but at present technology, it's just too far away and therefore too faint for us to actually see. Okay. So going back to the idea of uh, Nibiru itself, what would it look like uh, using like a modern, modern astronomy tools if, if such a planet did exist? So just forgetting for the fact that, that there's no evidence that it does right now. What what would it look like if it did exist? And I, don't account for the um, uh, this sort of uh, short periodicity thing. I, I guess what I'm saying is, how would we detect an incoming planet that was heading towards our solar system? Like, what what tools would we use? What methodology would, you know would work? So you're asking, uh, what if a Sitchin-like planet X did exist? How would we see it? Yes. Uh, look up. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, so let's say it's the size of Saturn. Saturn is uh, it orbits the sun every thirty-two, I think, ish Earth years, and it's bright. Ancient people knew about it; they were able to see it. You can see it with your unaided eyes, as long as you're not in the middle of New York City or some other similarly light polluted area. And so, all you have to do is look up, and there are 
a huge number. I'm talking well over tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of amateur astronomers who are constantly, every night, looking at the sky for stuff. Because one of the net ways that you can still make your name in astronomy is by discovering asteroids and by discovering comets. And if you discover a comet and nobody else discovers it within 24 hours, your name goes on that comet. And so people are constantly looking for anomalous objects that are not on any charts up there in the sky. And if there were a planet-sized object that were anywhere near the inner solar system, they would find it. I'm pretty darn confident that they would find it really fast. So all you have to do is look up. And people can do this with uh, amateur telescopes, like even a four-inch telescope, like I had when I was 11 or 10 or so, uh, to you know, a professional observatory that's 10 meters up uh, the Keck Observatory, although those professional astronomical telescopes aren't usually used for those kinds of surveys. So it would really be the, uh, the amateurs that I would expect would find something like that first. And there'd be no way to hide it. Uh, because that's another thing that plays into the Planet X mythos is that it's always hidden some way. Either astronomers or governments or whatever are hiding it in some way or not allowing knowledge of it to be shared. And it's it's just kind of stupid unless you're surmising that somehow they can clamp down on tens to hundreds of thousands of people spread throughout every country on the planet and somehow also – or I guess and or somehow also uh, throw up a hologram into the sky to block out an object and keep it on that object as it moves. So, Could I mean, once you're hypothesizing that, you know, it's just sort of like I'm not going to talk with you anymore because there's no point. Sure. That reminds me of another question from another listener. Um, he wanted to know how much is the government paying you to keep quiet about the alien base on the moon? <laughs> You know, I, I owe a lot of taxes this year <laughs> because I, I didn't make that much. And uh, well, no, let's put that out. Um, <laughs> all right. So you asked your question. The government is not paying me anything to keep quiet. In fact, usually if I keep quiet, the way that it works for getting any kind of grants from the government is uh, you don't get grants in the future because they want you to share what you do. Right. And if you don't publish, you perish. Uh, in terms of hush money, let's just say I drive an 11-year-old car, so, <laughs> and it's a Subaru. So there's no alien base then? Not that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of amateur astronomy, you know, it's funny. In, it, there's sort of an interesting parallel there between uh, astronomy and cryptozoology. So if you think about cryptozoology as being sort of an amateur approach to biology, but without the formalized training, uh, there haven't been any really notable cryptozoologically based uh, additions to you know our bank of human knowledge that I can think of I mean no that, that doesn't mean there aren't any it's just that I can think of but with astronomy the amateur astronomers have done some amazing things I mean just just off the top of my head thinking about uh, shoemaker levy the the comet that was co-discovered um, that they, you know, they're following scientific principles and contributing to the body of scientific knowledge. How does that work? Like, if if you are an amateur astronomer and you find something, is there like a, a formal national mechanism that you can use or international mechanism to share your findings? Why is it that uh, amateur astronomers seem to get so much more... Um, I don't want to say prestige, but like their their work is uh, notable, whereas in other fields, being an amateur sometimes seems more of an impediment to uh, recognition. There are formal uh, outlets and formal internet sites and formal organizations. Um, uh, so one of them is the uh, AAVSO, the American Association of Variable Star Observers. So this is one of the larger um, networks that's out there for amateurs to get their data to professional astronomers. And the reason perhaps that uh, astronomy is really, I'm not going to say good with, but maybe has more ways that amateurs can contribute is that astronomers don't have the kind of telescopes and time and survey capability 
to really do the kind of work that needs to be done in some fields of astronomy. So what variable stars are, are stars that vary in their brightness. So they they get really bright and they get really dim. And the way that they do this varies sometimes. Uh, Some are very regular and some are not. And what we really need in astronomy is just a huge amount of monitoring of these tens of thousands of stars and astronomers don't have the money or the time to do that. And so if you have a distributed network of people who can just go out every night and set their telescope up and set turn their camera on and just record this light, that's really good and really useful. And astronomers can use that kind of data. The reason that they can use that kind of data is, in my opinion, that there's no real interpretation that requires a professional. Once you start to get into the kind of analysis that needs interpretation, then I don't think that that's as good for the amateur community to do. So the reason why perhaps astronomy is uh, more reliant on amateurs than biology is we are still very much in astronomy in that we need all of these observations. We need a lot of data kind of field, whereas biology is more, uh, at least my understanding of it, is more along the lines of we have a lot of data. We now need to interpret it. And so it's a different stage in that process where amateurs are less able to do what the professionals who are better trained are able to do. Does that make sense? Am I completely way off base? I don't think you're way off base. I I do think like in the case of observing new items in space, space is – I think Douglas Adams uh, said something about it being really big if I'm remembering correctly. It's it's a big place. (laughs) And so when something's moving towards the Earth, uh, if you observe it on one night and it's within our solar system, uh, it's still going to be there tomorrow, right? And so verifying the existence of it is – it's not like Bigfoot. If you spot Bigfoot in the forest, um, you know, you get a, a fleeting glimpse and then you want to prove it, you know, unless you can catch that Bigfoot, uh, you're stuck, right? There's no moving that forward because uh, a photograph's insufficient, right? But, but you don't can, they have DNA from Bigfoot? Didn't Melba Ketchum do all that DNA stuff? Oh, that turned out to not be real. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, but that he's very indignant about that. By but the way. It, but think about it though. If it had been real, then that would have been samples that could have been verified by other labs. And ta-da, you know, uh, right. it, it would have been a proof of Bigfoot. That would have been great. Uh, it's that reproducibility that is, you know. Uh, Again, going back to the amateurs, you know, they're limited. Most people don't have an amateur radio telescope, right? So they're they're looking for visual, you know, sky. Visible or uh, probably very, very close to visible infrared light. Um, You start to get, yeah. um, Let's see. From the ground, you can't do ultraviolet. You can't do mid or far infrared uh, because the atmosphere absorbs all that. And amateurs are not really going to be able to do microwave or radio, although there are um, I, I have seen class projects like in high school level where they build a radio telescope and do something. So it's something that you can do. It's just uh, harder to do perhaps. Um, but once you get then at the other end of the wavelength, so gamma rays, x-rays, uh, you can't do that with amateur equipment and you you have to get above the atmosphere too. Well, you know, that's interesting because um, – and I feel like this conversation is all over the place, but I hopefully – it's doing one thing that I really want this show to do, which interesting. is – Interesting. It, it talk about, you know, uh, science at a little more depth than you get on a, a TV show, right? I, I think uh, <laughs> some of the no things – Not aliens. Well, well, yeah, yeah, for sure. But – in the realm of astronomy, you, as we just mentioned, you've got uh, visible light astronomy uh, or you know those kind of observations. But there's also – we talked about radio telescopes. There's X-ray, infrared. How do those work? I mean I, some of them are still uh, you know, just light spectrum but not where we can visibly see it. But, but how does a radio telescope work? I mean I don't fully understand that. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. I don't fully understand it either. Um, I took one class on data analysis in grad school where we had to analyze a data set from all seven um, main delineations in the optical spec and not not optical in the light spectrum. So again, from high energy to low energy, that's gamma, X, ultraviolet, visible, infrared, microwave, and radio. Is there, a, is there uh, an acronym for that or a, a, a mnemonic? Rather, not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> it would have actually come in really handy because I just put out a podcast episode on radiation. Um, but anyway, uh, I think what the X-ray telescope does is it's effectively one pixel. So it has no spatial resolution. And what you do is you just have a big dish that's pointed somewhere in the sky and you are getting a you are collecting whatever radio waves come in from that spot in the sky and that is your signal from that spot and then you can move the radio dish around or you can leave it stationary and the sky moves around for you and depend and you change pointing and then you have to go through some convolution where that's actually a math term it's not you know a figure of speech so you have to do some convolution or deconvolution of the signal to figure out where exactly which part came from where in the sky. And that is an extremely hand-wavy explanation, but I can't do much better with no, radio. No, that's, it's, it's, still, it's something I don't understand. Yeah, it's, it's complicated, but it is impressive the amount of information they've been able to get. I mean, uh, I, I've, I've just been amazed. Like, the uh, the arrays of radio telescopes. So I, I mean, my assumption is that it's because all of these bodies out there, especially the stars, but I assume nebulas and other things, are also giving off radiation. And that, oh yeah, everything. Yeah, everything and, gives off all wavelengths of light. So not equally. Yeah, and so to be able to uh, receive that information and then process it to get uh, like to be able to draw out you know, usable, understandable information about what's out there. I find that fascinating. Um, I, just like yeah, – actually, th- but- here, here's something interesting that your listeners might find and hopefully find interesting. The uh, precision to which the radio antenna or optical light mirror or whatever uh, kind of um, medium you're using to capture your light, the precision to which that dish – has to be uh, ground to or made to is comparable to the wavelength of light. So that means that you can make 500 meter or kilometer sized radio dishes reasonably easily because they don't have to be incredibly accurate in terms of their surface doesn't have to be perfect. Like you can walk on the radio dish, but you could never walk on an optical telescope mirror because the optical telescope mirror has to be ground to precision of just a few hundred nanometers because that's the wavelength of light that you're looking at. Gamma ray telescopes are even more precise and more complicated, but I always found that kind of cool, which is because I've gotten to walk on radio dishes and, and I was like, 
isn't this going to break it? Aren't you going to have to redo everything? And they're like, nah, it's fine. As long as you don't jump on it and get it out of, you know, push that panel out like half a meter, you're fine because the radio dish doesn't have to be that accurate. And that's why you get these gigantic radio dishes. But the largest optical telescope right now is about 10 meters. I hope you've got a picture of yourself walking on it. I do. That's cool. Which one were you, were you at Arecibo or a different one? No, I was at the uh, Very Large Array VLA in New Mexico, I believe. Very cool. I, uh, yeah, that, that is a neat place. I went, when I went to, on my exciting paranormal road trip back in 97, I ended up driving by the VLA. Just I didn't even know it was out there. I mean, I knew it was somewhere, but I was, I was not intentionally looking for it. But I'd already visited Roswell and then the stuff there. So on the way to my next uh, stop, uh, which was coincidentally, I was trying to get to San Diego to see the Heaven's Gate compound. Uh, <laughs> the uh, but it, it, on the way there was the VLA, and I thought, how cool is that? I mean, you know, this was uh, it's still it's one of the most uh, uh, from a science fan perspective, it's just a really, really awesome place to see, even though not a lot going on when you drive by. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Acebo, though, it ties in with the, the Chupacabra lore. The, the uh, Part of the original uh, lore there was that they were doing secret government experiments underneath the telescope, and that's where the Chupacabra came from. It's very interesting. That makes sense, yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> anytime someone so, can't see inside something, it's it's more fuel for the conspiracy, right? So, yeah, yeah it deals with a lot of conspiracy theories. So yes. uh, earlier you were talking about uh, ancient people and how they could see Saturn in their skies. And so we wanted to ask you a little bit about um, ancient people. How did they use astronomy? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Let me think for a moment. Is that, if that's too far afield for you, we, we can... No, I, I actually never took the archaeoastronomy class that my undergrad uh, offered. But, I mean, in general... Uh, yeah, well, I mean... They knew an awful lot about astronomy just because they didn't have much to do at night. Uh, <laughs> no internet. Well, right? No it, so Facebook. I, I was going to say the, uh, yeah. the 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 reason I was curious about that was not just because of things like the the Sitchin twelfth planet concept, which apparently is just not right, but um, but things like uh, you know. My understanding was that astronomy wasn't just about looking at the sky. It was also about figuring out when to plant. And like as we developed agriculture, the calendar came from the sky. You know, nobody was printing right, right. it. Right. You know, so, the so ancient peoples used uh, astronomy for a calendar system. They used it to try to predict when other stuff would happen. Uh, most uh, ancient gods and goddesses, as far as I'm, I am familiar with, uh, generally were thought to uh, live or come from the sky in the sense of it's in a place where we aren't. And so, uh, I mean, of course, the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans had their gods and goddesses were uh, planets in the sense of Jupiter, uh, Zeus. Um, and I don't know if they actually believed that that was Jupiter or Zeus. Uh, probably not. But in the sense that where stuff was in the sky might be able to be used to predict other things on Earth, that kind of stuff came uh, from the ancient peoples, so the astrology stuff. Um, but also in terms of just recording things, like a lot of ancient peoples recorded things like eclipses of the sun as well as the moon. Uh, the ancient Chinese recorded comets, a lot of comets. Uh, interestingly enough, they did not record a planet. Which uh, is always interesting to me. I mean, that's actually getting back to Sitchin. One of those things that I find really annoyingly contradictive, if contradictive is a word, uh, among pseudoscientists and people who claim about that Planet X was a thing, is that they put so much stock in this idea that uh, the Mayan calendar is going to end in 2012, or was going to end in 2012 because we're recording this five years later, yeah. um, or that. Uh, Sitchin, not five years, four years later, or that uh, Sitchin claimed that he read about the Anunnaki and the 12th planet in these ancient tablets, and we have to believe him because the Babylonians must have recorded all this stuff. We put so much stock in that, or they put so much stock in that, and yet they then have to somehow say, but all of these other cultures around the world who were also looking at the sky somehow missed it, <laughs> which is 
annoyingly contradictory to me. Um, and I, I've never actually heard anyone point out to one of these people who prognosticate or who claim all of this stuff uh, about the ancient peoples. But yeah, in general, ancient peoples used the sky for uh, calendar systems as well as then to try to predict stuff because I guess the thinking would go, hey, if you can predict when it's going to get warm based on where stuff is in the sky, maybe you can predict whether or not your king is going to win the next war. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an annoying because um, there's a lot of these ideas that are, uh, from a science fiction type perspective, they're fun, they're cool. You know, and I deal with this with my kids all the time. Wouldn't it be cool if aliens did this? Or wouldn't it be cool if, like, we could go to a planet and do that? And I'm like, yeah, it would be. Why can't we? Or why didn't it? Is there, you know, it's, it's, I, I want them to enjoy the fantasy, but also to realize there's ways of using rational thinking, scientific methodology to, to actually evaluate how likely those things were to be, right? And if they don't do that, then they're basically just grown-ups wishing, right? And and that's right. that's not really pushing us forward uh, in any kind of uh, scientific way or cultural way. And in fact, it's demeaning to some cultures. So, mm-hmm. um, well, and that's something that uh, Velikovsky did, as well as uh, and Velikovsky is dead now, but also Eric von Daniken with Chariots of the Gods. So both of them sort of have this idea that the ancient writings that talked about gods and various other things were actually ancient aliens who came to Earth and did all of this stuff. And in doing so, they ignore all of the different inherent contradictions in the mythology. And even Velikovsky, he – I'm not going to say deliberately because I can't read his mind, especially because he's dead now. Uh, Velikovsky actually – maybe inadvertently, completely misread some of the most famous of the Greek mythologies in order to fit his own mythology of gods and planets and other things, uh, because he said that Venus sprung out of Jupiter, and that's supposed to be um, in the Greek myths, but it's not. Aphrodite did not come from Zeus's head. It was Athena who sprang fully formed from Zeus's head. And so... There's this key point in Velikovsky's mythology that he says he got from the mythology, but it's completely wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll have to if put an asterisk. Was... Oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll have to put sorry. another asterisk about Velikovsky because Loxton did some really cool stuff with the junior skeptic. I'll link to that in the show notes. Sorry, Karen. I was just going to ask, do you think he was deliberately doing this or do you think he uh, just is it a bad was a bad scholar? I I don't know. Um, I would suspect that he may have made an honest mistake, and it must have been pointed out to him, and then he just doubled down, as so many people do these days, when uh, they have this um, – uh, what's the word? Um, a pre, I forget. A pre-existing notion. Yeah, we'll just go with that. The facts too. theory. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just so – it's not indebted, but they're so um, – just gung ho with this idea. Some, oh, they're invested. Cost. Like they're invested. Invested, <laughs> yes. They're so invested in this idea that even if it's pointed out that they made an error that they realize is an error, they have to double down and mm-hmm. say, no, you're wrong. As opposed to that's kind of the opposite of what a real scientist would do. It would be, oh, you're right. I'm wrong. All right, let's change this. Right. Yeah, well, it, that's certainly what every scientist should aspire to is to when yeah. you when you use the tools, you find out you're wrong, even if you love the theory, you have to dump it and move on. And and this comes up and this has real-world applications. I mean, as an IT professional in my day job, when I have a hypothesis about why something's going wrong or how to fix something, if I find invalidating information, I can't just ignore that because I love my theory. I have to let it go or the project will fail, right? And that that's real. That's real scientific approach to evaluating evidence. And, and um, it's, it's not just – some people think of it, especially people who don't have that sort of worldview – as being a uh, almost a religious approach, but it's not. It's just, but it is a different approach to using a, an emotional based or faith based uh, evaluation methodology. So, um, yeah. Well, if you're not familiar with that, it's a very difficult thing to, to really I, I, wrap your I, head around. It is, and not only that, but I would actually. It, this is something I want to talk about in my book. Should I ever finish it? But the idea that logic and reason are themselves a kind of a form of technology. Um, 
and they have to be learned. You can't just you can't. It, it's very easy to assume that everyone has the same uh, worldview as you, and that's why that sort of what do they call that a theory of mind that that people think like you do. And when you make that assumption, and you actually are actually in a, in a very different place with the way you're approaching the world, it creates a lot of conflict when you try to express your ideas. Because when those ideas are in conflict, everyone has their own tool set for evaluating what's real and what's not. And and if they're completely different, um, it leads to conflict. Um, so I will say this, that as a scientist, it is very difficult to say that you may have been wrong or you definitely were wrong. I mean, it, it, I came into science with a, you know, let's say a reasonably large inflated ego and it's taken several years before I've been willing and able just to say, yep, I was wrong. Moving on. Um, I mean, I've gotten to the point where, you send in you so you, you spend maybe years of your life doing a particular research project. You write a paper about the results. You submit it to a journal, and you get those reviews back. And they all say major revision, and they have pages and pages of stuff that they think you did wrong. It's so easy to just say no, you're wrong. And in some cases, those reviews can be wrong. But it's taken years for me to be able to say, wow. I have a lot of stuff that I need to go in and fix because they pointed out where I made a mistake. And being able to say that something, you know, it sounds like such a simple phrase, and yet it's really hard to get to the point where you can do it really easily. I'm still not quite there, but I, I am there. <laughs> I'm getting closer you should, to the point where I've actually requested. I usually request these days more reviewers than their default. I was going to say you should uh, you should do what I do, which really helped me a lot. Was just be wrong a lot, and it helps you. <laughs> it helps you get used to that. Uh, oh, I was wrong. But <laughs> well, but as a scientist, you also can't let go of that ego entirely because sometimes those reviews, as I said are wrong. I mean, they yes. might miss something yeah. and they might be wrong themselves. Or yeah, it might be a case where it's like there is an equal amount of evidence for your idea and my idea. Therefore, I think that my idea should be allowed to be out there in literature and have other people decide. Yes. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I also wanted to ask uh, about your uh, astronomy education. Um, that's a very important thing for you. Um, one of our questions is what kinds of public misconceptions about astronomy would you like to see eradicated through education, if you could? Everything. <laughs> so we know nothing. The public knows nothing. No, no. Just the misconceptions need to be eradicated. Um, <laughs> you know, it's when I was an undergrad, I swore that I would never forget what an average person without years and years and years of research in astronomy would know. And unfortunately, I have not succeeded in that. And the reason why I give that background is because it's really hard for me to say what particular misconception or misconceptions I think are out there that I would most like to see changed. Uh, because for me, I mean, I'm very much in my niche field of studying craters, but in terms of education and outreach, I really do focus on a very small subset of those misconceptions. And it has to do with things like Planet X or pole shifts or um, young Earth creationism even is something that I address a lot on my podcast or uh, things like, um, as I look through, uh, just general conspiracies like the Apollo moon landings were hoaxed. Uh, astrology is a big one. Uh, just uh, image analysis is also a big one in terms of how do we look at images and know what's real in the image versus what's an artifact of the way the image was taken. Um, there are entire websites. Yeah, there are entire websites built around identifying so-called anomalies, but pretty much all of those are just due to either the way the image was taken as not completely 100% correctly replicating the scene, or it's because of pareidolia, which is where you see phases and clouds, you see a, a pattern in randomness. So, I mean, it's all sorts of these things that I would like to see corrected, but I would say perhaps they're if I had to boil it down to a few underlying themes that I would prefer to be corrected, it would be just general conspiracy theories and right. image analysis uh, because conspiracy theories cover so much stuff. Mm -hmm. And if you could just step back and say, well, what's 
what's more likely to be the case here versus what's not? Uh, I mean, conspiracy theories cover the Apollo moon hoax to climate change, you know, all of these kinds of niche things to very uh, important policy things that have to be thought about in our current climate. Uh, not pun not intended, uh, but also image analysis just because of the proliferation of phones that have cameras on them and people take these pictures and they don't understand what's really going into how those pictures are recorded and they think that they understand them when they don't and then they apply that stuff to astronomy pictures and think all sorts of things which are incorrect because of those misconceptions in how the images are taken. Mm-hmm. True enough. I mean, if you look at Hoagland stuff, the the uh, the popularity of ideas that are based on misconception has no relationship to whether it's plausible or not. I mean, people love stuff that they think is interesting and fun to think about, or maybe even believe with all their hearts, but doesn't hold up to any kind of scrutiny. And it's it's fascinating. Well, and and I will mention this. Uh, I'm sure that Michael Heiser talked about this in his episode is the idea that Sitchin was really the only one to say this stuff was in the Sumerian tablets. And that is so common, not just with Planet X stuff, but with a lot of astronomical pseudoscience as well as pseudoscience in a lot of other places, is this idea of the armchair researcher being able to find something that no professional has ever been able to find when it's so much more likely that that one person made a mistake as opposed to the thousands of people who have dedicated their lives to studying this thing. Yes. And that's mm-hmm. another thing that as a scientist I find personally um, – annoying is too light of a word, but I'll use it. So just <laughs> annoying uh, when people do that. It's like, well, you have thousands of people who say this one thing and then you have this one guy and we're going to listen to the one guy. I mean, if I can just get on my, you can you can cut this out if you want, but if I can get on my soapbox, it's the same thing with climate science. It's this idea of, okay, I'm going to pitch a movie theory to you, so, or a movie script to you. So you have, for 200 years, a group of scientists who are trying to get a lot of money by making up this impending doom and disaster for the planet, and... Then the good guys come in 200 years later in the modern era, and there are these billionaire oil executives who are saying, well, actually, no, all of those scientists are wrong. Actually, yeah, you should probably cut that out. It just sounds stupid. I need to come up with a better way to say that. (laughs) No, I think think you're making a good point. Well, so one of the things that I keep thinking about in a loop lately is the – uh, it, some of that comes back to complexity. The mechanisms that are used to evaluate these complex sciences are based on years and years of small incremental improvements in the tools, right? And right. so to hop in and try to understand, you can watch a TV show or read a short book or an article. And you go, oh, I totally understand that, but you don't. You can't. Because that little summary that you read or that little short video that you watched that looks like it's giving you enough information to understand the big picture is not going to include the ridiculous amounts of work and background and decades, if not centuries, of accrued information that have to make it uh, testable and, and provable to whatever extent we can prove things. And And that's not that interesting to most people because, let's be honest – the person who's willing to sit back on the couch with some popcorn and watch a documentary on the History Channel doesn't have the time or inclination to pick up all that background, you know. Um, Too much effort. It was way, even if they had the patience, they may not have the educational background. If you spent 15 years of your academic life specializing in how to get, you know, finer and finer grain detail on what's real, you know, you may be able to summarize that in a, a, a paragraph, but that's all it is, is a summary. And it feels yeah. like knowledge, but it's not. It's it's just a, a, a small, simple assertion of a claim that's much more complicated. And, and that's – Kind of a soundbite. Yeah, it's a soundbite. It's, it's never going to have that detail, and, and it's always going to take way longer to explain, and you're going to lose people's attention. I suspect people may have stopped listening to me already, and I <laughs> – Huh? What? <laughs> so, well, yeah. isn't, isn't this just the Dunning-Kruger effect in effect? 
Well, it is. It is. But you could basically Dunning Kruger your way to a successful book deal if you have a wacky enough idea. So, yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of people who have. And mm-hmm. the thing mm-hmm. is, like, there's nothing in human uh, culture that really does a good job of eradicating false ideas. Like, those false, false ideas that are interesting have just as much uh, reproducibility, stickiness, whatever you want to call it. Uh, than the good ideas that are testable because that filtering system of saying, well, wait a minute, that's not true. That's not a, a worldview that everyone accepts. So mm-hmm. I find that right. Well, and it's so much uh, easier just to make something up and throw it out there than to spend those years of really trying to figure out if it's real or not. Yeah. And it's also, you know, in today's clickbait culture, it's mm-hmm. much more, it gets a lot more attention when you come out with these wacky ideas that are more headline grabbing than the more measured ideas of most scientists. I mean, that's actually something that I've found uh, interesting and I've only really latched onto in the last year or so is that people on these late night paranormal radio shows or whatever, they're going to give you a definite answer. This is happening. This is the way things are, whereas scientists are always if they're good scientists, going to couch their response in a, well, we think this, or it's probably this. Mm -hmm. And people don't like that uncertainty. And yet that's how scientists or science works. It it, it comes down to a fundamental uh, cultural difference in the approach, right? And I don't mean culture in the sense that, you know, uh, it's sophisticated and, and clever. I, I just mean it's it's a it's a fundamentally different way to approach this information, and I, that more and more that's becoming a uh, a problem that's going to have real world implications. I think. Uh, yeah, it's just it not taught in schools. Yeah, so it, it's it, this idea of culture wars. Um, even though I don't like the word war, there, um, I think. In, in like a one sentence way of looking at it is unless we have an organic cultural shift to evidence-based approaches, then nonsense will always have a, a better – nonsense will always be a better currency in the marketplace of ideas because it appeals to our more primitive and less sophisticated uh, 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 parts of our brain. I mean it's just uh, – it, it emotionally feels good and, and those things are hard to overcome. You know, it's like saving for the future. It, you know, the right thing to do is to put some of your money away and try to save it and invest it and grow it. But the reality is, most of us, it feels better to go shop. You know, it's like it's <laughs> you, getting over that uh, that 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 hedonistic approach or the you know what feels good and going to what's real is friggin' hard. And so, mm-hmm. I, I hope we're helping in some way by having you on and talking about this. Um, but it's 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 not a battle that's easily won. And uh, yeah, critical thinking is hard. Yeah, it mm-hmm. really is. And it's I think it's a big issue that's going to grow. So yeah, but it's coming to the forefront as well. Well, <laughs> our final question is to you. <laughs> I hope you're prepared for this one. Uh, that we like to always ask our guests: What is your favorite monster? Oh, gee, maybe you should have emailed me the questions ahead of time. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't listen to the show. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I don't listen to yours. <laughs> um, can I say the monster under the bed, or do you actually need an, a cryptid? No, no, that's fine. No, it is no really one has ever answered with that one, so that, that's yeah, interesting. That's a good, it's a great one, yeah. Yeah. I can actually give a real-world monster that is – not real, <laughs> that, that haunted me when I was a child. Um, so um, when I grew up, I, I lived in Cincinnati with my parents, and uh, they had a house, have a house, uh, that has a finished part of a basement and an unfinished part of the basement. And I always feared that Medusa lived in the unfinished part of the basement, and that as long as I could make it in and out before I could finish counting to ten – Medusa wasn't going to get me. Wow. That's very specific. How did you come up with that one? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> I think uh, I think my dad was watching some old uh, maybe Jason and the Argonauts movie and there was Medusa and it made an impression when I was six or seven. So Clearly, perhaps yeah. uh, perhaps from that. But I, I bet that you've not, never gotten that kind of uh, response or no, the monster. No, we haven't. Yet. I, Medusa no. definitely not uh, even referencing the monster in the bed. I don't think anyone's done that before. Um, those are both great, and 
Oh, yeah. In a lot of our promos, we talk about the monsters under our beds. And yes, so it's do. good yeah. to finally come full circle with that. <laughs> glad I could help. Well, I'm, I'm just glad that, uh, that you didn't get turned to stone in the basement. Me too. Yeah. Or, or although a lot of people have been stoned in the basement, that's different, though, right? So, well, yeah. and Karen this, this and I do Colorado. live in Colorado. <laughs> that's right. <Yep. laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Robbins, for joining us today. Yeah. We're going to have to have you back on because Stu just knows so much. He's yeah. a great communicator. Thank you for having me on. And we'll, we'll obviously you. put links to your show in the show notes. And uh, again, uh, thank you again, because uh, I, this is a topic that uh, really should be uh, of interest to everyone, because even if you can't see the night sky because you live in a city where there's no clear night sky, um, the universe is out there, and it is fascinating and full of mystery. Absolutely. The truth is out there. Well, I don't know about that, but there's definitely <laughs> a, a, there's a... a Provisional truth. <laughs> <laughs> You're such a skeptic, Blake. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Stuart. Appreciate it. Thank you, Stu. Thanks for your time. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzno. In today's episode, you heard Dr. Stuart Robbins, host of the Pseudo Astronomy podcast, explaining the scientific facts surrounding the false stories of a dangerous Planet X and the completely unfounded basis of the tales. If you've been afraid of the threat of such a thing, I hope this episode perhaps allayed your fears, or at least gave you some reasons to doubt the existence of such an astronomical event. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests, and do not necessarily represent the views of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. If you want to learn more about the Skeptic Society, you should try out eSkeptic, more on that after the outro music. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. Want to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. There are formal uh, outlets and formal internet sites and formal organizations. Um, I'm going to get the name wrong, so let me actually look it up. Sure. Um, Don't forget to put it in the form of a question. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.